And for an anesthesiologist who comes in and does that epidural or is saying hi to the patient before they go under, even though you only have a few minutes with them, that can be really impactful. I mean, if you come across as I'm not in a hurry, I'm competent, I care about you, and I want to make sure that you have the best outcome possible and that your family is communicated with, that goes a really, really long way. Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. We work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to episode 121 of APM Success. I'm very pleased to be joined by Jennifer Wigan again, who's the CEO of Aegis Malpractice Solutions. This is part two in a series doing a deep dive on specialty-specific considerations around malpractice. If you missed last week's episode, episode 120, you're going to want to check that out first. Today, we're going to talk about some advanced planning topics, specific considerations, and do a little bit of a deeper dive on malpractice. So Jennifer, thanks a lot for joining us today. Sure. Thanks so much for having me back. So I'm curious, you know, we were talking right before we hit record about some specialty specific statistics around malpractice suits and, you know, claim amounts and things like that. So what what are you seeing in anesthesiology and pain management in that regard? Yeah. So what's really cool is there's tons of data, obviously, out there with malpractice cases. And so we can really start looking at trends. We can look at averages and um, that helps us make sure our clients are insured appropriately, but it also helps educate doctors and make sure they really understand what the true risks are so that they can make sure they're um, planning accordingly. So the um, MPL, which is the Medical Professional Liability Association, it is the association that all the big carriers are members of. They actually can pull all the carriers' cases. And so that's a great way for us to get a feel for what average payouts look like. Look like. So for anesthesia specifically, from the years 2016 to 2018, the average indemnity payment was about $400,000. And indemnity is how much is paid, obviously, to compensate a patient. So that does not include how much was paid for the defense attorneys, the court fees, any of that. Indemnity is pure dollars paid to indemnify a patient. So $408,000 is the average claim payout for an anesthesiologist nationwide. Now, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of data specific to pain management. We'd have to really split some hairs to get that in information because pain management is considered a subspecialty of anesthesia from a malpractice perspective. So I think we can, you know, guesstimate that that is probably within the same range. Maybe it's a little bit less, but again, I'd say $300,000 to $400,000 is a good estimate as we're looking at average claim payouts for anesthesia as a specialty. But that's an average, that's not worst case scenario. So you know, we have seen some higher claim payouts, but again, in that same date range from 2016 to 2018, the worst malpractice case that we saw for anesthesia was a $2 million claim. So, you know, with the appropriate policy limits, I think you can feel pretty confident that you would be insured appropriately. There really haven't been any astronomical anesthesia cases in recent years, not to say that there couldn't be, but we haven't seen that over the last three to five years. Are there any other trends or sort of data points that you've seen in terms of recent cases that would give us some sense for how at risk am I as an individual, you know, physician? 
Yeah, you mean just in terms of of general payouts or like allegations specifically? Yeah, either or like you know, the, what is the light like? How many anesthesia claims have there been in the last three years, for example? Yeah, really good question. I am trying to see if we can get specific information. I can tell you as a whole, there were about twenty thousand malpractice cases nationwide that were filed from the years twenty sixteen to twenty eighteen. There really it would have to probably fudge the numbers a little bit to get specifics, but anesthesiologists don't get sued all that often. And like I said, in our last episode, you know, what we really see with anesthesia is it's one thing or another. It's either a chipped tooth or it's a death case. I mean, very rarely do we see anything in the middle. Usually anesthesiologists get looped in with surgical cases, but they usually end up getting dropped because if anesthesia goes wrong, it's either one end of the spectrum or the other. So we don't see a ton of claims other than that, usually. One of the things I share with my clients, and I'm sure you do the same when you're working with your physician clients, is that risk management, it's not a policy. It's like a way of life. Like you can't get a contract that's going to prevent you from being exposed to risk. There's a million little things you can do in your life to mitigate the risk of a malpractice suit or another type of lawsuit. So talk a little bit about as you think about risk management or what we might call advanced risk management strategies or just comprehensive, how, what other things should a doctor be thinking about in terms of managing malpractice risk? Yeah. Well, I think in order to have effective risk management, you first have to know what are people getting sued for so that you can try to wrap some strategies around that to make sure you're really touching on the things that are driving the majority of the losses. So just a quick high level, I wanted to give you some top allegations for all malpractice cases. You know, the majority of malpractice cases are diagnosis-related claims. So they're misdiagnosis claims, failure to diagnose, delayed diagnosis. That's the majority of malpractice cases. The second most is surgical-related. And sometimes that is where anesthesiologists get wrapped up. Very rarely, like I think only 3% of the cases that that purely get paid out are because of anesthesia. Usually, again, they're tied up with other surgical complications, but very rarely is it just the anesthesiologist's fault. Top allegations, though, we do have some data on what really is driving malpractice cases for anesthesia providers, and it is improper performance or your inappropriate response, knowledge deficits, communication failures, failure to monitor, And then obviously problems with intubation, like we talked about before. So those are the five things that we see most frequently as it relates to allegations towards anesthesiologists, CRNAs, anybody in that space. But there are a number of things that you can do to try to help with that. The one disadvantage that anesthesiologists have is that they don't have that doctor-patient relationship where a family practice doctor might or even a surgeon might if they've been seeing a patient for quite a long time. You know, anesthesiologists don't have a patient that they've been treating for years and years and years. They just get called in on cases. So, you know, bedside manner is usually really important. But with anesthesia, that can be difficult. You have to be able to show, you know, right away when you come in to see that patient, whether it's that mother giving birth and you're about to do her epidural, you have to be able to really show that you care, that you appreciate, that you're listening. There are some skills and some things that we've found that have really been helpful. Doctors who actually sit down next to their patients are seen as more empathetic than doctors that stand and hover over their patients. So having a good bedside manner is really important. If a patient likes you, they're less likely to sue you. So to be able to develop that rapport quickly is really important. 
obviously educate and communicate, make sure you have really good charting. You know, EMR is a blessing and a curse because it can make things really quick. It can also make it really easy for you to click a bunch of buttons and not be thorough. So documentation is obviously important. You want to make sure that you're putting factual information, full information, objective information. You're not speculating. All of that is also really important. Communication as a team, as a surgical team, is the other thing that is really important from a risk management perspective, especially if you're working with a surgical team or some uh, hospital team, you need to make sure that your communication is really, really tight with everybody that's involved in the care of the patient. Follow-up, being available, being accessible. One of the things we've also found is um, after an adverse event, or let's just say a surgery that went not as planned, it's important that the doctors are visible and present. Because if something goes wrong and all of a sudden there are no doctors to be found, that instantly sends up red flags. So for the patient to be able to see their providers, for them to follow back up and talk to them, to make sure that they're comfortable, to answer any questions that they have, that really goes a long way. Even if there was an adverse event or a bad outcome, the fact that you're not running away from it, but that you're coming to them and you're talking to them and you're making sure all questions are answered that really does make a big difference. In cases where there's a surgical event that goes awry, and it's one of these situations where, you know, the attorneys want to just sling everything against the wall and we're naming everyone and their mother in this suit to just see if we can get something. Can you talk a little bit about, I'm just curious in your experience, you know, am I, as an anesthesiologist, if my surgeon is a cowboy (laughs) and is like not adhering to best practice and is not communicating well and is very like, unprofessional to the point of endangering patient safety, am I as an anesthesiologist more likely to be wrapped up in that? And if so, and if there's a case where it's everyone and their mother is named, how how is the sort of individual liability meted out in that circumstance? Yeah. The unfortunate fact is you will get wrapped up in those. And that's why we do see, I mean, we have some anesthesia clients that just flat out won't work with certain doctors or they won't, you know, certain orthopedic groups that they're like, we're not going to be able to service your, your patients anymore because it is a liability and you will get tangled up in it because the patient doesn't know. The patient doesn't know that it was him, not you or whatever. All they know is they weren't taken care of. They had a bad outcome and they're going to just, anybody that sneezed within five feet of their door is going to get named on the suit. So When that happens, generally, if the anesthesiologist isn't as fault, they will get dropped fairly quickly in the process. But the problem is it still goes on their file. It still goes in their history as a claim. Even if they were dismissed a week after, it can still be, you know, problematic for them in terms of their total malpractice history, because that will get reported and it will get put on their record and, you know, future credentialing and hospitals as they're looking to recredential will be able to see all of that. Can you talk a little bit about the process? You know, if a claim is filed, how, how does this all play out? How long does it take? Who's involved? Sure. So it takes on average three to five years, which seems ridiculous for a claim from beginning to end. So it is not a quick process at all. And depending on your state, it could be quicker. It could be slower. Some states have like deterrent systems, like here in Indiana, we actually have a a medical review panel. So before a case can actually get filed in court, it has to go through the medical review panel first. And that's supposed to be a little bit of a deterrent 
So it can get rid of all those nuisance cases so that only the really legitimate ones actually get moved on to court. So again, every state is different, but on average, it takes three to five years for a case to be fully completed and resolved. If it gets dismissed, obviously that it can happen much sooner, but if it's a case that is seen all the way through through trial, it's a three to five year commitment usually. And then at what point, you know, you're probably serve notice, I guess, and you need to get an attorney and then maybe there's courtrooms involved. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, if obviously you you could settle or it could go to trial and sort of what are the options there? Yeah. So it, it always will start with you getting notice of a suit complaint. And again, every state has a slightly different process. In some states, it's literally as easy as a patient going online, clicking a few buttons and then filing a complaint. You will normally get served with that via certified mail. When you get that, it's really important that you immediately contact your practice administrator or your risk manager, depending on your practice situation, and then contact your malpractice carrier right away because it is possible for them to try to help you proactively make that go away much sooner. Most malpractice carriers have both a claims department and a risk management department. And oftentimes, the risk management department can engage early on to try to diffuse the situation and help, you know, make things go away, make sure patients are satisfied, take care of issues before they further escalate. But normally, if you get if you if it's officially filed and you get served, it's going to go to the claims department. At that point in time, you'll get a defense attorney assigned, and then the defense attorney is really who you'll be working with day to day. So, they'll collect all of the information on the case. They'll start talking to you. They'll start collecting all the information they can. Their job at that point in time is to really figure out what are the real facts of this case? Who are the real players? If anybody needs to be dismissed, obviously, at that point in time, they will. But it can take a little while to get the patient medical records, get all of the facts of the case lined up. And then the malpractice carrier is going to value the case. They're going to put internally, it's called a reserve. So they're going to put a reserve on the case of how much on average they think it's going to cost because they want to make sure they're budgeting for all of their open cases so that they know what to expect. But your defense attorney will really be the person that you talk to most frequently. Their job is to work with you, coach you, help you with depositions, help you with other interrogatories of any other interviews that you need to do. They are your advocate. And they really do want you to be shown in the best light possible because it's their reputation too, right? So they want a, they want a good outcome for you. So working with them is really going to be critical throughout the course of the, of the case. Very rarely will you work with the carrier. You'll just be working with your attorney and the attorney will be the one kind of working between you and the malpractice carrier to determine how best to move forward. If they do decide that a settlement might be necessary, if you have that consent to settle provision, which we talked about in last episode, That means that before the carrier is allowed to settle the case on your behalf, they have to get your approval to do so. So that's really important as you start working through that. If you decide, I didn't do anything wrong. I don't want to write a check on this. I want to fight it. But if you've got consent to settle, that's your choice. And you can advise the carrier accordingly if that's how you want to proceed. But usually what would happen is you'll work with your attorney, you'll determine the right way to move forward, and they'll coach you. I mean, they'll tell you, I think this is a winnable case, or I think we're probably better off, you know, 
settling this one and moving forward. They'll obviously give you their recommendations and their advice, but you'll work through that whole process with them. And then if it does end up going to trial, they'll make sure you're prepared to take the stand because you will. And then make sure you have everything you need to be able to handle that case professionally so that you can appear, you know, as, as confident and coordinated as possible. Because like we talked about earlier, jurors in general, like doctors, they don't want to think that doctors do anything wrong. Doctors are healthcare heroes. And so it really, you are in the driver's seat in the sense that most juries like doctors and they want to vote in your favor. So don't give them any reason to think otherwise. Just follow the advice of your defense attorney. And when you get to court, if you get to court, you'll be put in position to be, you know, as successful as you possibly can. At that point in time, then the case will be decided on, resolved, it'll get closed, and you can move on from there. That consent to settle provision, is that a common provision or like how likely am I to have that as part of my contract? So if you're with any of the big A-rated carriers, it's going to be pretty common. Although their provisions are not all cut and dry. You have some carriers that are black and white that say you have consent, you know, or we have to get your direct written consent before we can settle a case. Sometimes it'll say you have consent unless we deem you not valid or not, unless we can't get a hold of you, unless we think you're un, un, um, willing or unlawful or not willing to work with us. Sometimes there's little provisions like that that can be a little squirrely, right? So it's like, you've got consent unless we don't think you're really behaving and then we're going to say you don't have consent. So you really do need to read it to make sure you know what yours says, but all of the big A-rated carriers will have some sort of consent provision. Just make sure you know what it reads. Who pays for the lawyers? The carrier will pay for the lawyers, and that does not come out of your limits most of the time. Again, if you're with one of those big A-rated carriers, your policy limits are usually outside of defense costs, which means if you've got a $1 million per claim limit, that is purely for your indemnity only. So if the carrier has to pay the attorney $20,000, that does not erode your total amount of coverage. Now, that's not always the case. Again, if you're with a risk retention group, but maybe a smaller carrier, it could very well be that your limits are inclusive of all costs. So that's something you would want to look at. But normally the big A-rated carriers, defense costs are outside of policy limits. Have you ever seen a circumstance where a physician is like, listen, I feel like you just gave me the kid who just you know, passed the bar and I, I, we need the big guns and I, I want you know, the biggest name in town? Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the things we talked about last episode that I actually really think is important when doctors are comparing carriers, because I think the doctor should be able to choose. So if you have a doctor who says attorney X is the guy that we use every single time I trust him. He's the only one I want touching my cases. That should be a big deal. And so if you have a carrier that says, nope, sorry, you're going to have to use, you know, Johnny Smith, who we just hired from law school that's not advantageous. So yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, at the end of the day, you're paying all this money for this malpractice insurance. You want it to cover you. You want it to give you the best defense, put you in the best possible position. I don't want Johnny Smith who just got out of law school. I want Johnny Cochran or whoever that's going <laughs> to. Exactly. <laughs> Probably bad, bad, bad analogy. <laughs> well, yeah, I maybe not. I'm curious, you know, when you mentioned talked about like settlement and 
a couple different ways that sort of this can resolve. In all of those circumstances, in any case where the agreed upon amount is less than the policy limits, is that a situation in which the insurance company just cuts the check? Yeah. I mean, if it's a settlement and it's below policy limits and you've given your consent, yeah, then they'll just cut the check and the patient will be compensated. The case will be closed and everybody moves on. So if we talk for a minute about like the disaster scenario, the thing that keeps doctors up at night, which is, you know, I'm afraid that the patient's going to come after me and it's a $10 million judgment and like, I'm going to be ruined. It's first of all, you just said the highest anesthesia claim in the last three years is $2 million. So we're not in like, I'm permanently ruined territory, although obviously nobody would want to get that bill in the mail. But it sounds like in, in most cases, based on the policy limits that you recommend, where there's just very, very few circumstances, especially once you sort of stratify for risk for like the people who are conscientious about their job and the people who are less so, that that there's, it's just a very low likelihood. It sounds like based on all the numbers you're sharing and based on all these circumstances and the fact that there's these legal proceedings and the fact that juries like doctors, that you're going you're gonna to be ruined. Is that fair to say? It is. Yeah, it is fair to say. And I actually think with with appropriate coverage, good carrier, adequate limits, really good risk management um, for you and your staff. I think that you can practice very confidently as long as you've got those three things locked in and risk management. I know we talked about a few things before with like bedside manner and other things. It is really important that you are also training your staff on all of those things. Because one of the other things, and this may not be as much in anesthesia, maybe in, in pain management, but one of the other things that can be a real like, like elbow in the side of an irritated patient is like collection call techniques. So if you've got an, you know, a patient who really wasn't very happy when they left your office and they haven't paid their bill and you start gouging them with collection calls, probably not going to help you. So that's not to say you can't do collections because obviously you need to run a business, but you need to know what your collection call process is. What's the script? Who's calling them? What are they saying? How quickly are we calling them after, you know, we know they're irritated? How do we make sure we know this patient might be irritated? Maybe we should not, you know, call them for an extra 10 days or 20 days or whatever. So just making sure that your risk management is all encompassing as it relates to obviously the direct patient care and how you interact, but also how your staff interacts is really important. I think that's such a great point. And everything from uh, all the way down to like, is the person behind the front desk smiling when you walk in the door? And is it a warm and welcoming environment? Or and is are, it you, like, are people picking up the phone when people call you? Like, are they getting pet sent into like auto attendant, no man's land? Or like, are they getting a warm, friendly voice promptly when they call or are they putting going to put on hold for 25 minutes like you need to know all of that stuff yeah and getting back to what you said last episode about bedside manner it's it's just a different version of the same like building human connection so that i'm not throwing a lawsuit against the wall to try to get money from some rich doctor in air quotes i'm this is like a community member and someone with whom i have a relationship and even if it is an anesthesia interaction where it's it's more brief just realizing this is a part of the risk management program for yourself and your career is like building human connection and saying, I'm here, I care about you. I'm a doctor who's well-trained and I'm going to use all my skills on your behalf to make sure that this ends well. It's a lot more difficult to sue someone like that because <laughs> you know that they're trying hard. It's exactly right. And for an anesthesiologist who comes in and does that epidural or is saying hi to the patient before they go under, even though you only have a few minutes with them, that can be really impactful. I mean, if you come across as I'm not in a hurry, 
I'm competent. I care about you. And I want to make sure that you have the best outcome possible and that your family is communicated with. That goes a really, really long way. And, you know, what one other interesting, you know, statistic that we've looked at before, and I don't have the exact number, but there's a there's a really interesting research project that basically looked at family practice doctors in particular. Obviously, those are the ones that have the most longstanding relationships with their patients. I mean, we saw instances where where there was flat out malpractice, but the patients didn't even sue because they loved their doctor. They were like, he was trying his best. He knew, I mean, we love him. He's treated mom and grandma and great grandma for all these years and he's a good guy. So it's really interesting to see how far that goes because bedside manner, call it what you want, but the way that we interact with people really, really does affect this. Are there circumstances as we're thinking about risk management for a physician where there's non-clinical liability? And specifically, I'm thinking about I have clients who do consulting or other industry work or educational workshops or cadaver labs or weighing in on device, you know, like intellectual capital to to create, um, you know, like medical devices with in, in collaboration with companies that do that. Are there circumstances in which additional liability coverage and, and maybe this isn't med mal, maybe this is something else, but how do we protect that sliver of a physician's job description? Yeah, it's not med mal unless there's direct patient care or indirect patient care. But, you know, every once in a while, we'll have like a medical director situation where maybe they're advising or supervising. So in that instance, sometimes it can get wrapped back into the med mal. That's a separate type of liability, but it's still really important that that's also reviewed and taken care of. And in today's day and age of like online courses and online coaching and all of this stuff, all of that has to be taken into consideration as well. So that's a different type of professional liability coverage that you would need to secure. It's not med mal and it won't be covered by your med mal unless you're seeing patients or treating patients um, in the course of that work. But it's definitely something that would need to be to be looked at to make sure you've got coverage for. Have you ever seen, I'm just going to hit you with the grab bag of questions now, <laughs> the, the rapid fire round. Have you ever seen circumstances in which either non, obviously non-physicians definitely, but even non-medical staff have been part of a med mal suit and perhaps even have been part of the the, the malpractice itself. And I'm thinking of circumstances where like the person at the front desk tried to interpret a note that the doctor wrote or something like that. Yes. Yes. It happens. It happens where, yeah, communication breakdown. That's a huge one with non-medical staff. Now your malpractice policy, if you have like a corporate malpractice policy. So if, if you're Dr. Jones MD and you have Dr. Jones MD LLC, you're going to have to have malpractice insurance for that corporation. That corporation will cover all of the employees underneath it, including the non-medical staff. So luckily you can have coverage for that, but that does happen. I mean, patient X called in and said they were having problems. The message wasn't relayed or it wasn't relayed timely. I mean, that definitely can be a major issue as it relates to malpractice. I've heard of what, what, to me, was a little surprising. Perhaps it's a more esoteric strategy. Maybe this is common practice of physicians who basically, and, and you mentioned in Florida, you can practice without MedMal coverage. They they basically signpost to everyone like, I, I literally own nothing and I have no insurance. And so sue me if you want to, but you're not going to get anything because of however they've structured their estate with a bunch of irrevocable trusts and things where there's technically no legal ownership, which has all of its own complexities and challenges and problems associated with that. But is this something that you've seen? And can you kind of weigh in on that at all? I haven't seen anybody do Maybe that. Maybe those people I, don't call you because they don't need insurance. They, yeah, they don't. They don't need insurance. 
I haven't seen that, but I would not be surprised to see it. I mean, it doesn't stop you from getting sued. And my personal opinion is I don't think that's good patient care. I don't think that sends the message to your patients that you care about them, you're going to give them the best care possible. And if for some unforeseen circumstance or reason something goes askew, you've taken the necessary precautions to make sure that they're going to be taken care of. I think that in and of itself is an element of patient care. And for a doctor to to do that or post some sign that says, I'm uninsured, I have nothing, you can get nothing from me. I don't even know that I want to go see that doctor. So I've never seen it personally, but I wouldn't put it past somebody to do that. Talk a little bit about Florida, because obviously insurance is a state regulated thing. And we said in between episodes that there's some unique considerations around whether or not you even need to carry insurance there. Yeah. Florida is an interesting state because there was a period of time where rates were just off the charts, particularly in like Miami, West Palm, some of those areas. And even to this day, there are some malpractice carriers that'll say, we'll write in Florida, but we're not writing in Miami-Dade County. Like we're not going to write in those specific areas. So, and it's because that's where you see the 10, $20 million lawsuits. And some carriers are like, we can't do it. We can't afford it. We're not going to do it. Or we have to charge an astronomical amount of money and no one's going to buy it. So they've just flat out decided we're not going to do business there. So you have seen some carriers vacate certain ge- you know, geographical areas. And the carriers that are there are usually the ones that are a little bit bigger, larger. They feel a little more confident being able to be in that market, but they're going to charge more money, which is why we see doctors go bare. I mean, that's just become, you know, fairly common in certain areas of Florida in particular. Now, again, the state allows them to do that, but they have to follow a certain, you know, number of things. They have to post it. They have to be able to post bond. They have to be able to show that they're financially stable enough that they could cover a case if it comes in. And they do still get sued. We actually ran some uh, metrics just out of curiosity because I kind of wanted to know, well, is that do patients are patients less likely to sue if they know the doctor's bear? Kind of to your earlier point, the reality is they get sued just as much as everybody else does. So it doesn't necessarily, def, you know, deter patients from suing. It just means you're now responsible. So what's interesting is a lot of times doctors think when they're bare that it's just well I'm going to have to pay if I make a mistake. You have to hire the attorney. You have to pay all the court fees. And that means you probably have an attorney on retainer because you're basically any frivolous issue, any nuisance claim, you have no risk management services. You have no claims department that's going to help you diffuse, you know, funky stuff that goes on in the office, a disgruntled patient, a mad family member. You want to waive some fees. I mean, you're probably going to be paying several thousand dollars a year, if not a month just in a retainer fee to keep an attorney on hand. And you have to make sure that attorney knows what they're doing as it relates to malpractice. So, you know, there are a lot of hairy things that you can get into if you choose to go bare, but Florida is one of the states that we see it happen most frequently. Are there any other strategies or things that we haven't already mentioned or things to be aware of as a physician is thinking about comprehensive risk management that weren't mentioning? I would just say for most providers, They are not taking advantage of the resources that are free with whatever carrier they have. So I would highly recommend, if you don't already, contact your malpractice carrier and figure out what programs they have. 
Usually they have courses that are both free and they also have courses that can even give you CMEs. So it's definitely worth looking into because it can give you a premium discount. It'll help you with your continuing medical education. But more importantly, to your point, just that general reminder and fresh ideas, most of the big carriers too have specialty specific risk management programs. So obviously you can take a course on informed consent or you can take a course on HIPAA or you know, patient communication or whatever, but there are courses specifically on anesthesia cases or specifically on pain management techniques. And those are the ones that I think are really, really worth taking advantage of. And then if you are you know, the owner or the principal at your practice, make it mandatory. I mean, make it mandatory that everybody takes at least one a year, make your staff take it, make your practice administrator take it, It's really important, I think, that you make that a part of your general operating standards as a practice, because, uh, again, it's free. Usually you get a discount for doing it, but more importantly, it's just going to make you a more patient-centered, safer practice. So it's definitely worth doing and making sure you have access to. And again, as you're comparing malpractice coverage options, that's one of the main things that we try to make sure doctors are looking at, because that can be a big differentiator. If it's a $100 difference between carrier A and carrier B, the carrier B has this really robust risk management program, for sure, they're going to be the better value for you. So that's definitely something that providers should be looking at. Awesome. Great insights. Jennifer Wiggins, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much for joining us on APM Success. Anybody who wants to get in contact with Jennifer or reference any of the resources that she has talked about, check out the show notes, APM Success slash 121. It'll all be posted there. Jennifer, really appreciate your time today. Thank you guys so much. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to apmsuccess.com where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.